The widely acclaimed book, Sybil, was written in 1973 by journalist Flora Schreiber about the treatment of Sybil Dorset by psychoanalyst Dr. Cornelia B. Wilbur. According to the book, Sybil sought psychoanalysis in Omaha in 1946 after she began experiencing episodes of lost time. In one instance, she believed she was at Columbia University in New York, only to realize she was actually in Philadelphia after losing a period of five days. She had been attending college studying art, but was asked to leave the school as she was exhibiting severe nervousness. She was told she could not return until she received psychiatric care. Sybil sought the help of Dr. Cornelia Wilbur, who was still in training. However, after a miscommunication, Dr. Wilbur left the Midwest without contacting Sybil. Sybil continued to have episodes of lost time and eventually moved to New York, where Dr. Wilbur had also moved, and began seeing her for psychoanalysis. Although Sybil felt comfortable with Dr. Wilbur, she did not tell her about her blank spells when she lost track of time and could not recall what she had been doing. However, during one of her sessions, an entirely new person presented herself. Although she looked just like Sybil, this woman was childlike and angry and called herself Peggy Lou Baldwin. And after a display of explosive anger, Peggy Lou left and a smart, sophisticated, and self-assured woman named Victoria Antoinette Charlot, who called herself Vicky, emerged. Yet all three of these women inhabited the one body, and Sybil appeared to have no knowledge these other personalities existed, nor did she have any control over when they took over her body. It was then that Dr. Wilbur began to suspect Sybil had multiple personality disorder, a disorder that, while known, was considered very rare and not well understood. She sought to learn more about Peggy Lou and Vicky. While Peggy Lou was angry and volatile, Vicky was calm, worldly, and had great insight into Sybil's psyche. Vicky actually became Dr. Wilbur's co-analyst, whom Dr. Wilbur often consulted as she was so attuned to Sybil's needs. Dr. Wilbur, now certain Sybil had multiple personality disorder, wanted to share this diagnosis with her patient. However, Sybil's other personalities would not allow her to receive this news, fearing she was too delicate to handle the information. They would take over each time Dr. Wilbur tried to tell Sybil about her diagnosis. Dr. Wilbur continued to see Sybil several times a week for psychoanalysis, and during these sessions, several other personalities presented themselves. In fact, there were 16 distinct personalities in all, far more than had occurred in any other known case of multiple personality disorder. Through her treatment of Sybil, Dr. Wilbur attempted to determine why the personalities had formed. The theory at the time was that severe trauma was the catalyst for this disorder, and as such, she focused on uncovering Sybil's underlying trauma. Dr. Wilbur actually believed there were a number of traumas which led Sybil to split into these different personalities. One trauma identified by Dr. Wilbur was the death of Sybil's grandmother, with whom she was very close. Sybil reported dissociating for two years after this event and claimed to have no memories from the time she was in third grade until she was in fifth grade. Dr. Wilbur believed Sybil experienced another trauma later on when her best and only friend moved away. A third trauma was believed to have occurred when Sybil, who slept in her parents' bed until she was nine years old, discovered her parents having sex. She reportedly had a difficult time making sense of her parents' negative statements about sex and their actions in the bedroom. However, the most severe of the traumas Dr. Wilbur uncovered during psychoanalysis was the physical and emotional abuse perpetrated on Sybil by her mother. Sybil's mother was described as having engaged in lewd behavior in front of Sybil, such as defecating on a neighbor's lawn during a late-night walk. She also reportedly would fill Sybil's bladder with fluid from an enema and then beat her when she went to the bathroom. Dr. Wilbur surmised Sybil had developed these personalities as a means of self-protection, a way for her to escape this extreme abuse. Dr. Wilbur shared these insights with Sybil, and while initially reluctant, she eventually began to accept that she indeed had multiple personality disorder. With the help of Dr. Wilbur, she began to accept these personalities were in fact different aspects of herself and that they needed to be integrated as part of her in order for her to become well. 
Sybil began listening to recordings of her other personalities from her therapy sessions, as she had no awareness of them. But the process was difficult, and Sybil resented some of the characteristics of these other identities, as they were often able to speak up while she was silent. They fought back while she avoided conflict, and they advocated for themselves while she was submissive. She felt cheated that they were the ones who had meaningful relationships with others while she lived in the darkness of the blank spells. The process of realizing, confronting, and integrating these other identities was so difficult and discouraging that Sybil attempted suicide. But rather than seeing this as a sign the treatment process needed to slow down, Dr. Wilbur believed a more aggressive treatment model was in order. She began administering sodium pentothal, or truth serum, and using hypnosis during their psychotherapy sessions. Dr. Wilbur felt this would allow Sybil to voice her anger and hatred towards her mother for the abuse, and also toward her father for turning a blind eye and not protecting her. As Sybil began to confront and deal with her emotions, her personalities began to become integrated and disappeared one by one, as they no longer served a purpose. Sybil was eventually a whole person, and went on to live a normal and productive life. Or, so that's how the story goes. This episode is about Shirley Mason, otherwise known as Sybil Dorset. and welcome to Psychology After Dark, the podcast where we explore the dark side of the human condition. We're your hosts, Dr. Jessica McCono and Dr. David Morelos. Guess what, David? This is the last episode of our first season. Yeah, yes it is. It has been such an amazing experience and it's sad that we need to wrap the season up. But you know what? I'm really excited to get working on our episodes for season two. We have so many listener suggestions that we've started researching, and we'll also be doing some interviews of some experts in the field, which I'm really excited about. So we'll be back after the holidays with some brand new content. But we really wanted to end this season with a bang and talk about a very controversial case and, in fact, a very controversial diagnosis. This is sort of interesting. I didn't really understand how controversial this was until you started explaining it to me further. Well, I think there are so many um, media depictions of multiple personality disorder. And so I think people think that it's a very common disorder and that it's just kind of an accepted thing that this this exists. Sure. So I, I know that during the intro, I referred to this disorder and just now I referred to it as multiple personality disorder. But that's actually no longer the clinical name of this diagnosis. So I've spoken in several of our episodes about the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual, or the DSM, which is the book that provides a compilation of mental health disorders and their symptoms. So we're currently in the fifth edition of this book, but it was in the fourth edition of the DSM, which was published in 1994, that multiple personality disorder was actually changed to dissociative identity disorder, or DID. And this is the term that we use for this disorder today. So over the course of the episode, you know, we may be referring to multiple personality disorder or dissociative identity disorder or DID, and it all really is the same thing. So I remember reading the book, Sybil, when I was in college. Have you ever actually read the book, David? No, I I haven't. It was like mind-blowing to me. Um, I was absolutely fascinated with it. And many people viewed this book as being very groundbreaking 
So although DID or multiple personality disorder was not a new phenomenon, there had never been a case of multiple personality disorder where the patient had so many personalities. Well, there has to be a first, right? Yeah, I mean, there were other cases that were known before that, but typically they were talking about like two or three different personalities or alters, as they're sometimes called. Uh Um, But, you know, in Sybil's case, we had 16 distinct personalities. Okay, so that's why it was really groundbreaking. Not because it was the first time that this was really documented and popularized, but because of how many personalities there were. Yeah, I think that that was really part of it. And what's interesting is that the story captivated not just lay people, you know, non-mental health professionals, Mm -hmm. um, but the mental health community as well. And this book actually contributed to the diagnosis of multiple personality disorder becoming an official diagnosis in the DSM. So while people were aware of this condition prior to the book, like we were just talking about, it wasn't until after it was released that the diagnosis was formally added to DSM. Oh, okay. So I, that's, I mean, that just kind of shows you how important this book was at the time. Mm -hmm. All right. So are you ready for me to totally burst your bubble? (laughs) (laughs) That's, uh, that's kind of the relationship we have, I think, isn't it? sometimes it keeps things interesting right absolutely so as captivating as this story is there's actually been much information that has come out over the years suggesting that sybil or shirley mason did not really have this disorder at all so a book called sybil exposed the extraordinary story behind the famous multiple personality case written by debbie nathan in 2011 indicates that the story of Sybil was not as it seemed. Hmm. So Nathan explained that the real woman, Shirley Mason, was said to be very imaginative and she often made up stories. And she went to go see Dr. Wilbur, as I mentioned. And Dr. Wilbur had a very strong interest in dissociative identity disorder and suggested that Mason read about it early in their therapy. Okay, I think I see where this is going. Yeah, so Dr. Wilbur seemed to, you know, reinforce Mason's behavior. So as she, you know, as she was displaying these different personalities, Dr. Wilbur seemed to be very pleased. And she also treated Mason for free and asked her if she could write a book about the case. Okay. So Nathan believed that uh, Dr. Wilbur suggested Mason's symptoms to her. So it wasn't a case of, you know, I'm interested in, in multiple personality disorder. So if you could develop these personalities, that would be great. It wasn't something as overt as that. But there were kind of these subtle suggestions. And the thought was that Mason was so suggestible that she really picked up on that. And she really wanted to please Dr. Wilbur. Mm-hmm. Okay. And Dr. Wilbur would also ask her kind of these leading questions, which again suggested the types of sim- symptoms that she wanted to see. Well, that would that would make sense in the context of a therapeutic relationship in like in a transference sort of way. If she was projecting a mother sort of figure onto her therapist, that would make sense that she would want to do what the therapist wanted her to do correct yeah and and it's even a little bit more complicated than that i mean wilbur had a vested interest in mason's personalities because she thought that it would make her rich by writing this book and guess what it did it sure did (laughs) um but she ended up hiring flora schreiber to write the book um because she wasn't a journalist i mean she wasn't a writer so she hired this journalist And as Schreiber began researching the case, she began having doubts about the authenticity of Mason's reported symptoms. This is the the ghostwriter or the... The actual author of the book. The author of the book. Yes. The writer that was brought in. Yes. Okay. So she had, you know, she was very skeptical, but, you know, money talks and Schreiber ended up just kind of going along with the story Mm -hmm. and didn't really expose any of her concerns about whether or not it was genuine. Okay. So, you know, in the intro, I, I said that the book, Sybil, ended on a positive note. But Shirley Mason's life was not so idyllic. She reportedly became addicted to barbiturates, 
which were the same class of drugs that Dr. Wilbur was giving to her during these therapy sessions. And Dr. Wilbur also financially supported Mason. So she spent, you know, in addition to that, she spent numerous hours with her every single week. They met several days a week for several hours at a time. Dr. Wilbur paid her rent for her. She bought her clothes. She ate her meals with her. That can't be ethical. It's not ethical. Like that would that would never fly nowadays. Like that would absolutely be inappropriate. Okay. And my guess is that it was also very inappropriate at the time. But I think that just illustrates further the type of relationship that they had. And so not only was Dr. Wilbur a mother figure to Mason, but I mean, she was also depending on her for drugs, for financial support, for emotional support. I mean, you know, how then do you tell the person that, oh, by the way, what I was reporting isn't exactly true? Yeah. So it actually ended up being a pretty sad ending. Mason was fairly easily identified as being Sybil, as Schreiber and Wilbur did little to actually mask her identity in the book other than just changing her name. And so the real woman, Shirley Mason, ended up living in a quiet area. She had a a somewhat reclusive life until her death in 1998. So that's the case of Sybil, but guess what else? Hit me. (laughs) Many of the other highly publicized accounts of multiple personality disorder are believed to be grossly embellished, if not fabricated. Okay. I don't think I... I'm trying to think of uh, a case that I've heard of of this, and I think I've... I don't have any, (laughs) to be honest with you. So before Sybil, there was um, a book was also made into a movie called The Three Faces of Eve. Um, And that was also reportedly based on a true case. Mm -hmm. Um, And, you know, I think every so often a case will pop up in the media or in popular culture. Um, And sometimes like the movies are not are not biographies, but they're based on true events. And you'll also hear about some cases where people will use this as a defense for criminal behavior. And we're not going to talk about any of those in this episode because I definitely want to discuss the legal implications of DID in a future episode. Okay. So prior to this diagnosis being added to DSM, the disorder itself was quite rare, with only approximately 200 known cases occurring over several hundred years. Wow. However, once it was added to the DSM, the disorder became far more common, with approximately 40,000 cases being diagnosed in the 1980s alone. So the current version of the DSM states that the prevalence of DID is approximately 1.5% of the population. Right. And so if you'll remember, that means that it's more common, according to DSM, than schizophrenia. Okay. So a diagnosis of DID requires the presence of two or more distinct personality states and recurrent gaps in the recall of daily events, personal information, and or traumatic events that is more than just normal forgetting. So that's that's the criteria that clinicians are looking for. Okay. So as I've alluded to, DID is a very controversial diagnosis in the mental health field, and many clinicians question if it even exists at all. Most clinicians agree that dissociation can occur and often does occur when a person experiences a traumatic event, as many people will report difficulty remembering certain aspects of a trauma they've experienced, or they may feel like they were outside of their body, kind of looking down at the trauma occurring, right. or there's like a sense that it's not real. Well, so we had a, a, a listener email us about that and about out-of-body experiences in reference to the out-of-body experiences episode. And its relation to traumatic events. And I was thinking about that because I remember when you and I both were working with adolescents, there were a number of kids, because we used to use something called TCI, or Therapeutic Crisis Intervention. Right. Right. When um, we had to restrain a kid. And it was a it was a particular system that we used that was meant to be very very grounding. Okay. It was meant to be compassionate. You know, it was meant to be um, not. And I guess I would say maybe gentle. 
Okay. In the sense is that, and you know, and it was really designed to keep the kids from hurting themselves or right. anybody else. Right. Right. So there were some kids, however, that were on no contact or no TCI because they were known to dissociate when they were touched. Right? Touched, yeah, when they were restrained. Well, and I, I think that that brings up a good point because dissociative symptoms don't always occur just during the traumatic event itself, but they can also occur when there are triggers later on, things mm-hmm. that remind them of the trauma. I have seen it maybe once or twice, and it is kind of freaky to see that happen to somebody. Sure. It's not um, It's not what you would expect, but you know that they're just not there. And so, you know, mental health, the mental health field, I mean, pretty much almost all clinicians would agree that that is truly a symptom that occurs with trauma. Mm-hmm. But the idea is that that symptom is generally kind of transient, so it's going to come and go. Right. But in DID... Right. These people are developing an entire distinct persona. And this persona, this personality has its own history, its own temperament, its own speech patterns, its own behavior. Mm -hmm. And so that's kind of where some people are like, I like that seems a little much. That seems a little bit far fetched. Okay. so there there's actually been some research looking into DID And one often cited study was in 2004, where Piper and Mursky did an extensive literature review of cases of DID as they were looking to see if childhood trauma was present. As it had been estimated, such trauma occurred in 99% of the cases of DID. However, what they found was quite interesting. Their research found no proof that DID resulted from childhood trauma. They also found consistent evidence that some clinicians who were proponents of DID likely actually caused the symptoms of this disorder in their patients and even led their patients to develop false memories about childhood abuse that never actually occurred. And so in the case of Shirley Mason, you know, I'm not sure if she actually was abused by her mother or if that was one of these false memories that was suggested to her when she was under the influence of, of drugs or hypnosis. So as a research has not found a solid link between DID and trauma, it's thought that these symptoms may actually be better explained by other mental health disorders. And one such disorder that is often cited is borderline personality disorder. And I believe that we talked about this disorder in the episode on Gypsy Rose, didn't we? I think so, yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, but just as a refresher, one of the hallmarks of this disorder is not having a consistent sense of self, or in other words, it's an identity disturbance, which is kind of similar to, you know, what we're talking about with DID. So why are there so many people diagnosed with this disorder then? One of the problems is with the measures used to diagnose this disorder. Often much of the information used to provide this diagnosis is based on a client's self-report and their answers to specific measures. And it's been argued that the way that these measures or these scales are designed increase the rate of false positives or the number of people who are falsely diagnosed as having this disorder. So on one of the scales that's commonly used for this disorder, one of the questions is, I get so wrapped up in watching TV, reading, or playing video game that I don't have any idea what's going on around me. Now, David, has that ever happened to you? <laughs> yeah, the, the general term that I've heard used for that state of mind is called flow. So it could be flow, like if you're really um, focused on a task, right. or it could also be like you're just you know, you're not paying attention. Okay. Like you're, you're, you know, you're kind of on autopilot. You're not aware of your surroundings. Oh, uh, okay. I see where you're going. Yeah. And, and so most, maybe all people have had that experience at some point. Absolutely. I think I've had that experience at some point today. Today. <laughs> but of course I, you know, I don't have DID. I'm pretty certain. I don't no. have any episodes of lost time. Right. No. 
So, you know, you can see how if these are the types of questions that are on those measures used to provide this diagnosis, you could be getting a lot of people that don't actually have it that are being given that, that disorder as a diagnosis. So another concern that people often cite is that clinicians who are proponents of this disorder stand much to gain by providing this diagnosis to their patients. Mm. So the recommended treatment for DID involves years and years of intensive psychotherapy, which of course costs lots and lots of money, right. which you know the therapist ends up benefiting from. Okay. So while you could make the argument that this would be the case for any mental health disorder, most mental health problems do not require such frequent and long-term treatment. Skeptics of this diagnosis believe that many times patients will endorse symptoms of DID because they've been suggested to them by their therapists, which is what was believed to have happened in the case of Shirley Mason. I think that that actually, that phenomenon yeah. happens quite a bit where a, a therapist, a well-meaning, well-intentioned therapist will suggest something and this person sort of just latches on to that because yeah. it sort of gives, uh, particularly in the population that you and I work with, it, it almost gives them an out. Like, oh, well, this, this is the answer to all my problems. I think as clinicians, we have to be very kind of careful about what we say and, and what we present to our clients and our patients because we don't want to be asking those leading questions or planting false memories or suggesting symptoms that the person doesn't actually have. Yeah. So one other concern that uh, the skeptics point to is that while most clinicians will never see a case of DID in their entire careers, the clinicians who have recently received training in the diagnosis and treatment of DID have a significant increase in the prevalence of patients with this disorder. So it's like they get the training, and then all of a sudden, now everybody they see has it. They have a brand new shiny hammer, and <laughs> everything suddenly looks like a nail. Exactly, exactly. That's a really good analogy. So they've also found that the number of people diagnosed with this disorder increases after a popular book or movie about DID is released. And again, that suggests that the symptoms have either been suggested or fabricated. So like recently was the movie Split. Do you right. remember watching that? Oh, great movie. It was a great movie. Like I don't buy that any of that was true. And I, I don't think that it was really meant to, to be true. Um, but you wonder if there was maybe an increase in people reporting those types of symptoms after that movie. Hmm. Okay. So why might someone report these symptoms if they don't really have the disorder? People who report having DID may find it to be a more convenient or acceptable way to explain thoughts or behaviors they experience, which are uncomfortable or of which they're ashamed, right? It's much easier to say, well, that wasn't me that did that. Mm -hmm. Sure. I've certainly seen individuals who've attempted to excuse their criminal behavior by claiming that they had DID and saying that another personality was in charge when they committed their crimes. I bet. But it's pretty interesting because the courts, um, by and large, have generally not ruled that the presence of DID excuses a defendant for their criminal behavior. Even in a confirmed case of DID. Yeah. I mean, and, and I'll talk more about that. There's so much to say on that subject. But needless to say, even though it might seem to some who purposefully fabricate these symptoms, yeah. that it's a way to get away with crime. It's actually not. I would say that, you know, the fabrication of those symptoms is much more common than the other way around. Then this person really does have DID and one of those personalities committed a crime. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So you might be wondering, do I think DID exists? Right. Was that on your mind? <laughs> well, we've not, wasn't on my mind because we've talked about this numerous times. <laughs> yeah. But uh, and I kind of know where you're going to go. So, but for our listeners, let's hear it. So, what I can say is that in my years of practice, I have never seen an authentic case of DID. So, I've clearly seen people who were purposefully fabricating these symptoms, and I have also seen people who I think wanted to believe they had different personalities who could be responsible for some of their disturbing thoughts and feelings. 
However, at the end of the day, I've never seen a case. Yeah. And that makes me skeptical because the DSM suggests this disorder is more common than schizophrenia. Um, and I've obviously seen numerous cases of schizophrenia in my career. Right. So, you know, if this disorder is so common, why do I know so very few clinicians who've seen an authentic case of it? I suppose in theory, I could see how it might be possible for someone to develop this disorder in response to severe trauma. I mean, I think about if the things that they said happened to Sybil as far as her abuse, if those things really occurred, like in theory, I get how that could fracture a person, so to speak. But, you know, even the research hasn't really supported that trauma leads to DID. They haven't found a conclusive link like that. Hmm. So, you know, as a psychologist, I always try to stay open-minded and objective. So there very well may be a time when I do see a legitimate case of this disorder. I just haven't, I haven't seen it yet. So I haven't ruled it out, but I haven't seen it yet. Yeah. Well, it sounds like it, it, it you know, to really witness this, it would almost be like a career-making event. It would blow my mind. Yeah. Like, it would really blow my mind. It would be fascinating, but I, I think that if it does exist, it is probably so rare that there's a good chance I may never see a case in my career. You know, so I wanted to start here by acknowledging, you know, your skepticism that this pathology exists or that if it does, it's exceedingly rare. And uh, certainly less than 1% or 1.5% of the population that's claimed in the DSM. I am willing to take your word on that since this is definitely more your wheelhouse than mine. But even, I mean, think about all of the people that you have worked with over the course of your career. Right. I mean, have you ever seen a case of this? No. No, of course not. But we, but somebody, if somebody had that diagnosis, I'm pretty sure that I would not be in contact with them. They would be, they would be, you know, um, probably under a much more intensive psychiatric care than, you know, in the drug abuse program. Yeah, but I mean, just think like inmates in general. So if we know that the courts are not saying that that's a free ticket, that you'll be found insane. Mm -hmm. So there are people that have claimed it and been convicted and so ended up in prison. So that's why I asked, I mean, has there ever been an inmate um, or a kid that you've worked with that you felt, oh my gosh, this person has DID? No, uh, and, but to be honest, I've never had anybody claim that either. So I have one guy who is, you know, trying to claim schizoid personality disorder. And, uh, you know, there's a, there's a, he seems to have like a vested interest in wanting that diagnosis. You know what I mean? Yeah. And that's always interesting. It's like, you know, when we look at physical health diagnoses, like, I don't know anyone that would be like, I want to have cancer. Like, please find cancer in me. Right. You know, but sometimes with mental health, you'll see that where it's like, no, I, I want to have this diagnosis. And I think it gets back to what you were saying, where sometimes it, it feels almost like an excuse or an explanation. So, well, getting back to the cancer, you know, we did have we did know somebody who really, really wanted to have Parkinson's. Right. Who really wanted that diagnosis, but then could not seem to find a doctor that would diagnose that. But, right. It's not out of <laughs> so the realm. It's not out of the realm of possibility, sure. It would be odd, right? right? But in terms of this, there is, you know, I could see lots of people wanting to use this as an excuse. But so far in my experience, nobody has ever presented me with that excuse. Okay. You know, that this is multiple personalities. So... What interests me about DID, however, um, are some of the parallels in psychology that may help explain some of the symptoms, namely the people who seem to switch personalities without realizing that they're doing so. So have you ever seen an episode of the United States of Tara? Yeah, that's, that's like been a while, though, since that's been on, right? Yeah. Um, Tara, who was definitely played by Tony Collette. I love Tony I Collette. I love her, too. Yeah, she's great. Um, she won an, uh, an Emmy and a Golden Globe, uh, if I'm memory serves, for the character or characters, I should say, in the show. You know, I never watched the full run of the show, but the premise was focused on how Tara's family sort of coped with her and her DID diagnosis, uh, including the often funny and outrageous situations that each of these personalities got her into. So obviously, one of the most ident I 
Identifiable Works that explores the idea of DID is the classic strange case of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. Oh, yes. Yeah, by Robert Louis Stevenson. So, as most people know, this novella is about one Dr. Jekyll who takes a serum he develops to keep his alter ego, Mr. Hyde, at bay, only to slowly be overtaken by Mr. Hyde's persona as the story goes on. So, Dr. Jekyll is described as a gentleman, while Mr. Hyde is impulsive and animalistic, fully controlled by his emotions and basest desires. So, at first glance, this story conjures up the very well-known duality of the so-called good and so-called evil sides. We know this story because it's been told thousands of times. I say so-called, and I put it in air quotes, because I think this is a very pedestrian way of interpreting this piece of literature. So let me give you an example. I have a tattoo on my back that you've seen many times. Yes. Right. Of two very different faces. They're side by side to create two sides of one face. I won't say what the faces are because that's kind of personal, but needless to say, they're very different from each other. The half face on the right side is very dark, um, very wild sort of looking, very sinister, while the half face on the left side is very serene, very mindful, very contemplative. Anyway, I've been asked about it a few times, usually when I'm on vacation or something, you know, where I have my shirt off a lot. You mean you don't just walk around like that? No, not generally. (laughs) Not generally. But the question that inevitably comes up, people always start with the question, well, does this represent the good and evil of man? And so this idea isn't unlike, like, you know, the angel on one shoulder or the devil on the other shoulder or the Native American story of the good wolf on one shoulder and the bad wolf on the other shoulder And the one that takes over, the one that's controlled, you know, controls you is the one that you feed. Right. But to me, the idea is sort of simplistic. This is, there's a lot more to the story of my tattoo, just as I believe there isn't much to be gained by trying to pigeonhole these types of concepts into this dualistic good versus bad. I explain my tattoo to people as one face representing my very embodied, sort of very sensual, very emotional side that is firmly rooted and a product of the material world. While the other face represents a much more spiritual side that is quiet and reflective and transcends the material world. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. And they're both part of you. Sure. So does this make one side good and the other evil? I don't believe it does. No. I think, like you said, it's so much more complex than that. Yeah. And so this is the case of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, where we have two very distinct personalities. While Stevenson wrote them as being at odds, it's like believing that daylight is somehow at odds with night. They're not at odds. They're just different, right? They're two parts of a whole. Right. They One can't exist without the other. Exactly. Okay. So in the Batman movie, The Dark Knight, which is one of my all-time favorites, Mm-hmm. Um, This concept is explored um, through Christian Bale's Batman versus Heath Ledger's Joker. So at one point, Batman accuses uh, the Joker of trying to destroy him, but the enigmatic and highly perceptive Joker corrects him by saying, destroy you? No, what would I be without you? So this is the sort of yin and yang relationship that exists between Batman and the Joker, and which I think is much more sophisticated of a concept than the good versus evil duality. In this relationship, one is certainly more dark than the other, but each comes to realize that it is the relationship between them that gives each other some kind of profound meaning, a meaning that would be lost if one were to vanquish the other. I really appreciate C.G. Young's concept of the shadow. The shadow concept is something that can be difficult for me to explain to a lot of the inmates I work with because it demands a tolerance of the space between light and dark. It requires that sometimes we take a very sort of uncomfortable position holding tension between sides and accepting the nuances of the human condition. I think it's very easy and of course simplistic and a misrepresentation to to call our shadow sides evil because this isn't the case. The shadow can represent some of our most profound and repressed self-knowledge and insights if we have the courage and intrepid spirit to explore it. The thing that many people tend to miss when dealing with the shadow dimension of themselves is that there needs to be a relationship between these sides of a person. The shadow demands respect, and we must honor it somehow. The analogy I use 
to explain this relationship is this. Imagine driving a car with two unruly kids in the backseat. Okay, so this is, of course, a reference to when people like you and I were growing up. Yeah. You know, where the entertainment pretty much consisted of looking out the window. Yeah, oh, yeah, I totally remember and, that. And that uh-huh. was pretty much it. You're yeah. lucky if you had a Walkman and could play some tapes, right? <laughs> yeah. Okay. So anyway, while my parents were driving, you know, cross country with my kid sister and I in the back, they listened to us complain and they yelled at us when we fought and stuff like that. But sometimes they also pulled the car over to buy soda or cotton candy or to see some weird roadside attraction like the world's biggest prairie dog or whatever. (laughs) Right. And we would shut up for a while, my sister and I, because we were entertained, you know. At no time, however, did my parents ever throw the keys at us and demand that we drive the car. No, that would be disastrous. Yeah, that would be ridiculous, right? Yeah. So the shadow is kind of like that. Every now and then, you have to let it out in a controlled way to express and honor it. But at no time do you let it take control of the car. So the more Dr. Jekyll tried to repress the Mr. Hyde part of himself, the more control Hyde gained over the whole persona. In this case, Dr. Jekyll never figured out how to express and honor his shadow dimension in a healthy way. Jung used to say, what you resist will persist. If you do not do your shadow work, it will sneak up behind you and grab control of that steering wheel when you least expect it. Yeah. Sometimes it'll drive that car right off of a cliff. And we've seen that happen Absolutely. to people, right? Yeah. I, I truly believe that that's the nature of addiction. And we'll get to, to that in a later episode, I'm sure. But I'm, I think that that's really what's going on as a basis for addiction. Yeah. I I could see that. So in substance abuse treatment, I often look for hidden trauma in the lives of the inmates that I work with. Sometimes we have to acknowledge and accept different sides of their whole personality that sometimes come into conflict with one another. In order to do this, I use something Jung called active imagination, whereby you personify different aspects of your personality, then speak directly to these different sides as if they were real people. You ask them questions, then you write automatically, letting that part of your personality speak for itself. At first listen, this may sound kind of, you know, new agey and hokey, but sometimes the results of this exercise are actually quite extraordinary and people find out things about themselves to include why this side of them won't stop bothering them. Often it's because the person has failed to honor the whole of themselves and has marginalized some aspect of their personality that needs to be heard. Huh, okay. So they then engage with this side of themselves and begin to reconcile the conflicts in themselves by coming to an agreement on how everyone, everyone being in their mind, can feel heard and honored. So the idea of many personalities is not too far off from this. I believe that we all have many very different sides of ourselves that we show the world depending on the context. It's almost as if something like DID is a very extreme case of these different sides of one's personality all vying for their time to be expressed. This seemed to be the basic theme with the United States of Terra where each personality was a very real side of Terra. Each was created to help deal with some very real issue or issues. The whole goal of her therapy, if I remember the show correctly, was to bring these personalities together so that they could be integrated into one master identity. And that was the goal of Sybil's therapy too, right? Right. Well, that makes sense, right? Yeah. I mean, it, it would make sense to do that. So now juxtapose this idea with the movie, another great movie that you and I like a lot, Identity. Oh, that's so good. Yeah, which was based on the Agatha Christie novel. Um, whereby the treatment for the convicted killer with multiple personalities was to manipulate all of the personalities to being at the same place at the same time. In the movie, this was a seedy motel in the middle of the night, and then kill off each of the personalities so that only one would remain. So here we have an example of one personality becoming dominant by vanquishing the rest of them inside this landscape of one person's mind. Yeah, and what was the Agatha Christie book? It was, and then, and then there were none, right? Yeah, so it was called, and then there were none, because I, I remember I actually just recently read that, and I hadn't realized that that's what the movie Identity was based on. But now that you say that, that makes a lot of sense. Okay. So this is what I'm talking about. Different sides of personalities simply don't go away. In other words, you can't vanquish them as they tried to do in the movie, you know, the Agatha Christie 
novel. They usually become part of our shadow selves and go to sleep for a while while we're busy crafting our master identity, which is the persona that we show most of the world. But something funny happens as we approach midlife. Our shadow side starts to, sometimes quite suddenly, demand more attention. If this is handled unskillfully, it can become a midlife crisis. If handled skillfully, it can become a true psycho-spiritual awakening. We start paying more attention to our own hidden desires and needs rather than focusing so much on what we've been told to do all our lives, like build careers, raise children, you know, things like that, Yeah. which become part of our master identity. So now that we're taking up something from our past that we thought we put away a long time ago, in your case, uh, would that be tap dancing, oh, Dr. McConaughey? I loved tap dancing when I was young. Loved it. Well, it's funny because, you know, when you and I first met, I don't remember you ever really talking about it. But lately, it's come up in conversation as something that you would like, that's as a side almost of yourself that you would like to express. Yeah, it would be fun. It would totally be fun. Yeah. So this is what I'm talking about. This is sort of something that, you know, when you were younger, okay, well, I'm not going to become a professional dancer, so I'm going to put this away. But it's still a part of you. Yeah. It's a side of you. And so now, as you get a little bit older... It wants to express itself again. Make sense? Yeah. So Jungian scholar R.A. Johnson calls this owning your shadow in the second half of your life. This is when people start feeling more comfortable in themselves to the point where they can start to indulge some of those whimsical sort of childhood fascinations that for whatever reason were dropped a long time ago in favor of something usually more, quote, practical. And we've all done that. Yeah, tap dancing, not practical. Sure, of course. No, something you just really enjoyed doing. Right. But we put it away, you know, to get on with the business of life. What we're told to do, in other words, okay, now you need to have a career, now you need to have kids, now you need to have family, whatever it is, right? But then as we get older, those sides of ourselves start demanding more attention. So thus we begin a dance between these different sides of ourselves, whereby these sides go back and forth and each feels like they are expressed and they're honored. Our day-to-day ego persona is the one leading the dance, of course, but it's still a dance with multiple partners, each that demand a certain respect. So I wonder if those with DID, the normal persona, the master identity is too fragile or weak for some reason, like a trauma, let's say to really lead this dance and therefore each of those other sides of the personality take turns leading the dance instead of just being the dance partner does that make sense yeah that's that's kind of an interesting theory yeah so it's in other words it's like it's like the parents you know pulled the car over threw the keys to the kids in the back seat and told them to drive for a while and you know when the real ego the strong ego doesn't want to drive another one of those shadow dimensions takes over hmm. so that was just sort of some thoughts that i had on this because i know i do a lot of work with active imagination in terms of the men that i work with and sort of re-engaging these shadow dimensions of ourselves and i think that it, the problems really occur when we start to devalue or repress those shadow dimensions so the, the, the real idea is how do we integrate them? How do we integrate these parts of ourselves and really reconcile them without letting them take control of the place? Yeah, and that, that's really the question for everybody, not just somebody that has DID, but for all of us, right? Learning to integrate all of those other aspects of ourselves. Right, and so to me, you know, I mean, looking at this just from the little bit that, you know, that I've explored this idea of DID, I could see DID just being a very extreme sort of version of that, that idea. You yeah, know? and that it's, it's certainly possible. I mean, it's just one of those things that, as I said, we don't know a whole lot about it. We don't know even really how it develops. And so I, I think that that's a really interesting theory. Thanks. <laughs> <laughs> so I just wanted to take a moment to say thanks to all of our listeners and our supporters. This wraps up the 16th episode and season one of Psychology After Dark. Jessica and I are going to take a break for the holidays so we can return in the new year refreshed and inspired, ready to dive into the dark side of the human condition. This time will allow us to get back to some of the other things we love. Uh, Jessica, you're going to be studying, right? 
Yeah, I um, am working towards my board certification in forensic psychology, and it's a long road. It's a very difficult process, and um, you know, I hope to succeed at it, and definitely will let you all know how it how it turns out. But I'm definitely going to have to put some time and effort into that. Yeah. So this is your next professional challenge. That's right. For me, I want to spend some time reading. I want to spend some time writing. You know, and indulge those other sides of myself, right? Yeah, you know, maybe I need to go back to tap dancing. (laughs) (laughs) I know that, you know, it's funny. It's because like in the past year, I think you've brought it up more times than you have in the first five years you and I were together. Really? Yeah, certainly. And you actually met somebody at work who shared that interest with you. Yeah, that's true. You know, so I think that definitely, you know, maybe not tap in particular, but the the somatic expression of dance i think is definitely a part of both of us we used to we used to like to dance and maybe if we explore that during our break that's something we'll post on facebook for you guys to see that should be quite entertaining (laughs) right so i'm also into a book right now um by an author named gabor mate called In the Realm of the Hungry Ghost, which is about addiction. Gabor Mate is a, an MD who uh, writes uh, extensively about his first-person accounts of dealing with drug addicts as part of, I believe, the Canadian Health Service up in Vancouver. And I've been totally fascinated by it. And it just sort of made me realize that, wow, there's a lot of books that I <laughs> want to get to. I know. There's know? so so much to read and so little time. Yeah. So... In the meantime, Jessica and I will continue to post on our Facebook page and encourage you guys to reach out to us while we're on hiatus with any ideas you may have for season two. And so we really hope to overhaul and revamp and uh, upgrade some of the things to the podcast. So hopefully we'll have some really nice surprises for everyone for season two. Yeah. And if you guys want to reach out to us, there's a couple of different ways that you can do that. So you can um, go to our website, psychologyafterdark.com. There is a submission form there, which will send us an email. And we love emailing back and forth with our listeners. So please feel free to reach out that way. Uh, You can also leave comments on our discussion pages. We have discussion pages for each of our episodes. And you can find us on Facebook at Psychology After Dark. And feel free to leave a comment there or reach out to us on Messenger. So, yeah, we hope to hear from you guys. And we hope that everybody has a very nice, happy, safe holiday season. And we will see you guys in the new year. Thanks for joining us. The information contained in our podcast, on our webpage, and on our social media pages is for entertainment purposes only. All views expressed are solely those of the individuals involved and do not represent the opinions of any entity whatsoever with which we have been, are now, or will be affiliated. The information is not meant to diagnose or treat any mental health condition. If you are experiencing mental health symptoms, we encourage you to contact a mental health provider in your community. If you are experiencing a mental health emergency, please call 911 or go to the nearest emergency room. Today's episode was written and hosted by Dr. David Morelos and me, Dr. Jessica McConnell. It was edited and produced by Dr. David Morelos. The songs in this episode were Dubstep Slow Motion by Cool Loop and The Arrival by Liskus, both provided by Gemendo.